So again, that's uh, why the Geneva robe. I thought Reformation Sunday, worn 500 years ago, uh, it continues today. So that is why I'm wearing it. Um, so I only wear it on special occasions, but here we go. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, uh, God woke me up in a, a pretty dramatic way. I uh, was 25 at that time. I was in seminary. I was working two jobs. Um, Aaron and I lived on what I'd call like a, a servant's quarters where we, it was like on this estate uh, where we did all the gardening uh, to get room and board so that we could make it through seminary. <laughs> um, and we found out uh, 10 years ago that uh, Aaron was pregnant. Surprise. And uh, that was, okay, so here I am in seminary, working two jobs, living in this small space, and uh, now we're going to have um, a kid. And it was, it was pretty shocking. And uh, I kind of was in a state of a denial for a long period of time through the pregnancy that this is really not happening. Uh, but, you know, as, you know, your wife changes, you, you start to realize um, this is real. This is happening. And, you know, those moments come in waves. And, you know, I remember if she has a baby, you know, all those kind of, you know, oh, it's wonderful, it's amazing. It's still, it's still kind of surreal and it's kind of a blur and, you know, all these people around and gifts and the hospital, this new experience is crazy. And I remember coming home with Ellie and Aaron's asleep and here we are, I'm on this estate and I have Ellie and she's in the stroller and I'm walking her around and it was, you know those moments that just kind of hit you? Like, oh my word, what has just happened? And I remember that. And I remember going, God, I can barely take care of myself. And here you have given me this daughter. I, uh, I have problems um, controlling our cat. How am I going to deal with this little one? And I remember just saying, God, I, I commit this girl to you. I give her to you, knowing that I, am, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need you in this process. You know, life changes shake us up. Whether it's you're going to be a new parent, whether it's a change in your career, whether it's the loss of someone in our life, well, it's a change of scenery. Life changes shake us up. And this morning, we're going to see God is going to do a radical change in a couple's life. He's going to shake them up out of their apathy. And He's not just going to shake them up, but He's going to shake up the complacency of a whole nation. So we are going to look together at Judges chapter 13 and see the way God shakes up a couple and what he does. So let us pay attention to God's word. It's printed here in your worship guide and we'll be reading from uh, the ESV. 
Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with a child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded, let her, be, let her observe. And Manoah said to the angel Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, in Amhenedan, between Zorah and Eshtol. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these are... 
your words. Let us be reformed by them. Let us be revived by them. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Judges. We're taking 12 weeks in it. And uh, I guess a question I get from some people is, why Judges? And why preach the book of Judges? We've had a left-handed Savior. You know, we've had a guy that's hidden a wine press. We've had a guy that's made a horrific vow. We've had these judges, men and a woman, that have been extremely flawed and kind of corrupt leaders. What would this book try to speak to us today? I'm going to argue this, that Judges is a book about worshiping God in a pluralistic society. Something that we face today, too. What do I mean by worshiping God in a pluralistic society? Well, this is what's happening in Israel at that time. In Israel, you had all these other nations and all these other gods that were living in the land or around And these influences, these other gods, um, just kind of cause Israel to say, oh, we can also worship those gods along with our God, Yahweh. And God continually pressed them and said, no, there is only one God. You can only worship me. But in the midst of them worshiping these other gods, they were enslaved by them. Now, we don't have uh, Baals or Ashtoreths, wooden gods that um, we have around us today, but I think we have other things that compete against us. Compete for our time, or what I call modern-day idols, materialism, celebrity, achievement. I mean, let's get more to Wisconsin, right? Um, the perfect family. Um, my independence so I can have my own time to go fishing or hunting or watch the Packer game with no interruptions. Maybe the perfect body that I'll be in shape, that I will look good. And what this passage in Judges says is that these other gods will enslave you if you make them your God. But the gospel, the good news, is this. If you put God first, if you honor Him, He will order the other things in your life the right way. So that these good things, nothing wrong with working out, these good things will be put in the right place. They will not enslave you or become your idols. So, God is trying to intercede in this pluralist society to make Israel see if you really want to be free, you need to worship me alone. So he does it in this birth narrative, okay? Uh, Now, I know you guys are ready for the good times, right? Samson, right? You're ready for the hair and for, you know, like, you know, crazy donkey jawbones and killing lots of people. I mean, that's exciting stuff. Oh, great. I just get good news. We're going to have three weeks in Samson, okay? But... The whole chapter is devoted to this birth narrative. The only birth narrative in Judges. 
So we can tell this is going to be a special or unique person. So this is how God prepares us for Samson. And again, God prepares us in giving us the cycle of the problem of Israel. Look with me, verse 1 and 2. The continual cycle that we see over and over again when judges come, the people rebel, God sends other nation, other gods that oppress them, and then Israel cries out, and then he sends a judge, and they're delivered. So, that's the cycle. Let's see the cycle again. Okay, what does it say? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, check one. Okay, good. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Check two. We can tell it's getting worse. This is the most time that they've been oppressed. Double the amount of time. 40 years. It's getting worse. Okay, check three. They cry out to God for his deliverance. Wait a second. That is not there. Encourage you, please hear me. If you want to understand Samson and the context of Samson, you have to understand what is going on in Israel at this time. It has gotten so bad that Israel is saying at this point, we're not even crying out to God. We don't even realize that it's bad. We're actually being oppressed by the Philistines for long periods of times, and we're just kind of getting used to it. That there's really no other way. We're fine with it. It would be like this. Um, I have a junker car, right? Um, and uh, let's say one of you comes in and rides with me in my car. Maybe you have a junker car too. And uh, I just kind of get used to the things that are part of the junker car, okay? But then someone rides with me in the car and says, um, I don't know if you know this, Dan, but smoke is coming out when you put the heat on in the car. And I said, oh, I, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that. The idea that you're so used to it that you don't even really notice it anymore. Maybe you don't have a junker car, so you don't relate. Uh, so I'll use another example. Um, how about uh, Minas Tirith, right? Where's my Lord of the Rings people, right? Minas Tirith, right? How bad did it get in Minas Tirith, Right? What was, how do I pronounce his name? The king, the, uh, the steward king of Minas Tirith, Aaron. Denethior, is that what his name was? I'm trying, yeah. It was so bad, it, you watch the movies like I do and don't read the books. It's so bad that he doesn't see that Gondor, or that, not Gondor, that, um, what is it? Mordor is oppressing him, that they're coming after him. That it's not until it's too late that he realizes that the oppression is upon them. And that is a picture of Israel. The light has gone out. Well, I think it also happens through history. Um, in the 14th century, uh, the church was in problems. The leader of the church, Boniface VIII, proclaimed this. He said, I am Caesar. I am emperor. The head of the church says this. And upon his head, he had a crown of 48 rubies, 72 sapphires, 45 emeralds, and 66 large pearls. That was what was upon his head. And then what he would do is he would call people throughout Europe, come to Rome. 
I will pardon you of your sins if you give money to Rome. And what happened is, the writers at that time said there were two priests that would constantly, through night and day, would rake in all the money that Rome was collecting so that people could be pardoned of their sins. The church got so bad that there became three people that said they were leaders of the church. And they would war against each other. They would excommunicate each other. (laughs) And to fund their wars against each other, they would sell indulgences. If you give money to fund my war, I will pardon you of your sin. The church in the 14th century. Northampton, Connecticut, the 18th century in America. John Edward said it was a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. Licentiousness and crudeness ran rampant throughout New England. My understanding, you know, that was probably a time where more people went to church. Actually, it was when less people went to church then, in the beginning of the 1700s, that even now today. The Puritans and that kind of religious ideas of the 1600s had gone away. And instead, you had a moral state in America that was in major problems. And John Edwards spoke to that, seeing what he saw of drunkenness, of crudeness throughout Northampton. The 1900s in Pyongyang, in Korea. Pyongyang was known for a city of women, of wine and dance. They killed Christian missionaries there. And one missionary said, I only know of one convert in all of Pyongyang. It even had its own geisha school where they would solicit young women to be prostitutes for their whole life. The lights had gone out. How do we know it was so bad in our own life? How would we know? I mean, Israel doesn't even know it was that bad. They were even blind to seeing the problems among them. How would we know? I'll argue this. Whether, you know, you're a follower of Christ or not, whether you've been a Christian for the extent of your life or not, all of us are blind in certain er- of certain areas of sin in our life. Some of us might say, what I dealt with five years ago, I didn't even see. <laughs> now I can see five years later, man, uh, thank you, Lord, you've changed me in that area. But all of us have things in our lives that we're just kind of blind to seeing the oppression upon us. Should we let them sit because we're all blind? Absolutely not. And here is the good news of this chapter. God does not leave Israel there. He does not leave us there. He sends something. He sends a deliverer. He gives grace even when we don't see we need Him. He comes. And so this is what He does. He gives us a glimpse of what is happening in Israel, the state of the people, by showing us what the parents of this Samson, this delivery is going to send, how they deal with God coming to him. Does that make sense? When you're good, still tracking? Okay, here we go. So, into this. What's happened? Manoah and his wife, 
something miraculous happens. It's a barren woman, a part of a tribe, I'm going to call it the red-headed stepchild of Israel, Dan, okay, um, the the one that's kind of the outcast tribe of Israel, the one that really everyone looks down upon is this tribe. And what good news and what grace that, one, God would come to the tribe of Dan, and second, that he would come to a barren woman. Now, please understand this. To be barren in that culture was very, very bad. Because the worth of someone was found in keeping their lineage. If they had no lineage, they had no value. And so there was much shame among anyone that did not continue their lineage. And here is good news. Triple good news, if you will, okay, right? One, guess what, Manoah's wife, you're going to have a baby. Two, it's going to be a son, which is, sorry, ladies, it's better than having a daughter because it can continue lineage. And third, this son will be set apart by the Lord. It will be unique. And the way it will be unique is this Nazarite vow, which is read about in Numbers. The Nazarite vow was a vow that anyone could make for um, a period of time. They made a vow themselves. They would abstain from grapes, wine. They would grow out their hair. They would remove themselves from unclean things. And that was the Nazarite vow. And that would be setting yourself apart for the specialness and uniqueness of God. But this Nazarite vow is different. How is it different? Please follow along with me. One, it's divinely imposed. God puts it upon her. Usually it's someone imposing it themselves. Two, it's from conception. Usually it only happened with someone that was older, but it happens from conception. Three, it's usually only a short period of time, but it's until his death. And last, Samson just doesn't participate in the vow, but his mother also participates in it. To be different, to be set apart, that is what Samson is. I guess I ask this question, why would God set up this Nazarite vow? I think he does it because of this. Israel has been so enmeshed in Philistine culture the Danites have been so oppressed by these people that God is saying, I want to show you there is a different way to live. I want to show you a uniqueness through this guy's long hair, through the choices that he makes, that I am going to run counter to what the oppression you're facing is. I want to show a visual representation of who I am and what I can do. Keep following with me here. But how does Manoah and his wife respond to the angel of God coming to them? Not in the best way. Number one, not the best way. The wife leaves something out. Look with me here um, in verse 5 of chapter 13. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, when she kind of communicates this message to her husband, she seems to leave out the whole idea that um, her son is going to deliver <laughs> them for the Philistines. That's the important part, right? That he is going to be a deliverer, that he's going to be a savior. So number one, 
They don't even, she leaves out the important part. Two, it seems that Manoah is unaware of the Nazarite vow. He doesn't know the history of Israel and what it says about um, Nazarites. And that's why he continues to question this angel. I want to know more. But the angel says, it's right there. I've already given it to you. Next, he negotiates with the angel. He says, why don't you stay with me? Have a meal. Uh, I don't think it's to come in our culture. I, I went to Kenya, Africa when I was young. It's about 14. I spent a summer there with a, uh, a Muslim family and, uh, in Mombasa. And uh, there is something about meals that is different today. One is, um, because I'm a guy, I didn't have to do any of the dishes. And if I did, it was an insult. So the men would we'd go into kind of the living room. And this man, after the meal, he would smoke his pipe. And in those conversations after the meal, this is what would happen. Uh, they, he would give me theology on Islam. And the idea was this, that when you, after a meal, this is the time to negotiate. To negotiate beliefs, to negotiate ideas, to get people to believe what you believe. And that was just the typical thing that we did over, after dinner. And it's the same kind of way here. Here, Manoah's saying, why don't you come and eat with me? I want to negotiate with you. I want your blessing. I want to know what you can give me. Is the same thing. And it goes even worse. He says, I want to honor not Yahweh, but I want to honor you, the person, because it seems like you can give blessings. So instead of honoring God, I will honor you. A problem. Okay? Do you see how bad it's gotten? Here we go. The irony is this. Um, who has a name and who doesn't in the story? Manoah has a name, doesn't he? She doesn't even get a name. Well, what's funny is she seems to be more faithful than her husband, doesn't he? She really deserves the name and he doesn't. And the thing is, Manoah is clinging to anything. Anything to find a solution. Anything to be blessed. Anything that can be able to help him in this state other than Yahweh. You know, before I got married, I probably bought 12 books on marriage and read them. Before I had a baby, I, I probably didn't read as many books. I was just in paralysis. But before big changes or when big changes in my life, I want to find solutions. Tell me, how am I supposed to proceed? What am I supposed to do? What steps am I supposed to take? Manoah says, what is this child supposed to do? I will find anything in any process to be able to know how I'm supposed to act within this situation. But here is what I think God is communicating. This angel is communicating to Manoah. All the rules in the world, all the books, would not be able to give you direction in the innumerable decisions and choices you have to make in raising a son. You can read, uh, some people are getting mad looking at Noble and Joseph, you can read so many marriage books, but you're not going to know, it's not going to prepare you for who knows what's going to happen. 
Adrian Moy, you could read, you know, preparing for what's going to happen. What's that book that everyone reads? Like pregnancy book? What's yeah, what's your surgery? You could read that book backwards and forwards, and still you wouldn't know all the dynamics and the heart issues going on in your child. God is saying this. If you want wisdom, if you want to proceed in those changes, if you want the blinders off your eyes of what's going on in your life, you need to turn to me, not to anything else. And the truth is, I gave you that son. It is my son to fulfill my purposes and not yours. The angel, he says, uh, what is your name? And whenever someone asks that, what is your name in ancient culture, it was to be able to have dominion over them, to have power over them. If you called them by their name, then you could, you could own them, basically. So what does the angel say? My name is wonderful. Do you want to see a place where God calls himself wonderful? Psalm 139, it's a verse that a lot of the guys and I are memorizing some of the verses in there, but Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Hear me, please. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful, the same Hebrew word, for me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Manoah, I know you better than you know yourself. If you want change, if you want to be blessed... Come to the one that is wonderful, that created you and made you, and is making this deliverer, this son, in your midst. But what happens? <laughs> Manoah offers an offering to God. And in offering the offering, I'm, I'm thankful for Adam Koenig. Adam continues to guide me in our community groups. He does a great job. It's just really well said um, that when he sees that this offering and this angel go up to the Lord in this miraculous way, he says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. And Adam said, this guy had no idea this was the angel of the Lord. He had no idea this was God himself. And now he was faced, face to face with the living, holy God, that he realized he had made mistakes, that he had doubted that he had done all these wrong things, that now God shook him up to say, here I am, I am God himself, that all he could do was fall on his knees and say, I shall surely die being in the holiness of God. God is holy, and when we are faced with it in the midst of our problems and our issues, all we can do is fall to our knees. Again, that happened in Gideon's life. It's happening here in Manoah's. But again, I love Manoah's wife. Read with me, please. Verse 23. Logical. Clear. Under fire. No problem. Sounds like Aaron with me stressing out having a first child. 
But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Yes, Manoah, God is holy, and in that we are in trouble. But God is also love and gracious, and he holds us and cares for us, even in the midst of his holiness. Look, he didn't kill us but he's delivering us. Both things are seen together, his holiness and his graciousness. Again, I'm thankful for my community group. Uh, Moises pointing out some good things. Who is this angel, he said? Who is this angel? Well, let's see who this angel is. How does he identify himself? One, he's awesome, as the woman says. And then he says, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And the angel said, I am. Who also says that I am? What did God say to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked what God's name is? I am. (laughs) What did Jesus say to the Pharisees when uh, they wondered who he was in John chapter 8? He says, I am. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, just go with me. Now he goes on and says this, For I am wonderful. Isaiah 6, 9 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. The same Hebrew word, Wonderful. And then, Lastly, with the flame, he goes up into heaven. What is that a picture of? Uh, The argument you made, this is Jesus. Some people can make the argument. I I don't know either way, but I, I do know this. That God, through a birth narrative, sent a deliverer to Israel. And it says to begin the Philistines stopping to have oppression over Israel. Later on, there would come another king that would finally deliver the people, a greater Samson, and his name would be David. And David would finally deliver the people from the Philistines. But then there came another birth narrative. One that came... One that would deliver not just from the Philistines, but that would deliver all of us from our sin. A greater deliverer than Samson. A greater deliverer than David. One that would hold the holiness of God, His greatness, His majesty, His power, and also His graciousness, His love, together in a person of Jesus Christ. So that when we look at the cross, we see both God's holiness and His grace come together in the man of Christ. You know, when I hear the word revival or reformation, I'm sorry to say I'm a pastor, I should think about more other things than this, but I think of loudness. I think of big tents. I think of people, you know, coming to some emotional state of conversion. That's a revival, right? 
That's old-time religion, you know? That's, G- that's Dan talking loud, you know? That's revival. But I would argue this. Reformation and revival many times did not have that. But instead, there was just silence. As people stood before the holiness and awe of God, there was just silence. A silence of awe as the Spirit worked upon people's hearts to go, man, I am in trouble. But at the same time, I am in the place of a God that loves me and is gracious to me in that state. In 1907, in Pyongyang, that all hit Korea. One of the missionaries said just three years later, you know, in 1890, I knew one born-again Christian in all of Korea. In 1910, he said this, there were 200,000 Christians in 20 years in Pyongyang. Christianity was nothing. You know who's sending the most missionaries in the world today? Not us. South Korea. A revival hit that place like that. And people stood in the awe of God. That is Reformation that we celebrate today. In Northampton, Connecticut... John Edwards started to preach the holiness of God. And in one year he wrote this. The work of alteration in a town, so that in the spring and summer following of 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. He said it never was so full of love, nor so full of joy. This is so telling. And yet so full of distress as people's hearts were changing as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families, on the account of salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, and husbands over their wives, and wives over their husbands. A revival and a reformation took control of New England in the United States. That was just astounding. And in 14th and through the 16th century in Europe, also a revival was happening through Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. A nation dark in sin. So Wycliffe did this. He wrote the first English translation of the Bible. And he started to give it to these priests that were so poor that the the church didn't care about them, he would give them these little sections of the Bible to go to towns. And they would go to towns with these little sheets of paper and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And this is what people said. They said whole towns would be transformed by these poor priests coming with one sheet of paper telling the good news of God. 
I love the richness here of what the Reformation was like written by a modern scholar. Please hear this. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture. One sip which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about your perfection, worrying about doing it yourself, worrying about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. You want reform? You want revival in your life? Like Israel that was blind, they could not even see it? Stand in front of the grace and holiness of God. He will wake you up and His love will be lavished upon you so that you'll say, I need to be transformed from the inside out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in an age where many things are pushing for our time. A pluralist age. God, I pray that You would wake us up. That You would help us see that we need revival in our own hearts. That it would call us to repentance. To see a holy God and be confronted with that. At the same time that we would see Your grace lavished upon us through Your Son. pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen.